This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. We are now tuning into the Top Rank podcast. And for any new listeners, our podcast profiles women of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging the world around them. So recently I was in a women's clothing store and noticed a black spandex tube top pants set. Um, and this wasn't any ordinary mm. tube top pants set. Embroidered across the spandex band of both the top and the bottom were the words FEMINIST embroidered in all caps. And a few days later, actually, I was passing by a shop window and noticed a display. In the front window of this store, there was a shirt and a matching makeup bag with the words intersectional feminist emblazoned across it. For me, these encounters have struck me in a major way, and I've been thinking about them a lot recently. And they struck me because, um, to me, they signify a potentially positive sign of shifting consciousness about gender and power but also afford an opportunity to really unpack and perhaps contemplate and perhaps even critique um, these engagements that I had recently. I think we can all agree that we're living in a moment when rampant sexism and sexual abuse in every echelon of what seems to be every industry is being publicly taken to task both on social media and in court. And this is in part because of certain iterations of feminism have now reached levels of mass popularity that they had never um, achieved in the past. And this shift in public discourse and top line awareness about the daily realities of gender inequality should and and of course must be acknowledged and celebrated. But it also begs a a few questions. What are the feminist ideas that are being popularized, circulated and sold now? Who does pop culture feminism benefit and who might it also foreclose and even erase in what larger economic system does it operate and i think most importantly which is kind of where we're going to take this conversation how do we harness the generative potential of this shift to bring about a change which is actually intersectional and actually lasting so to talk through this and more we are so thrilled to have dr sarah benny weiser on the show today Sarah Vinnie Weiser is professor of media and communications at the London School of Economics and author of the new book, Empowered, Popular Feminism and Popular Misogyny. As a scholar of media, advertising, and society, Professor Benet Weiser has authored numerous books on the social implications of commercial media on shaping everyday life, especially for women and young girls. Her other books include Kids Rule, Nickelodeon and Consumer Citizenship, and Authentic TM, The Politics of Ambivalence in Brand Culture. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank Thanks you. To you for having, thanks for you both for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. Great. So we're just going to get right into it. And our first question is actually about your new book. So we'd like to ask you um, about the premise of Empowered. Um, what do you mean by popular feminism and what do you mean by popular misogyny and how do you see these two phenomena manifest in Western culture today? Um, okay, well, I, um, as you just mentioned, Marcel, I, I've long worked on, on um, popular culture um, as a sort of terrain of politics and cultural identity and struggle. And so I. Um, what, you know, about, I would say six or seven years ago, I started noticing 
Um, like you just uh, said, the, you know, the top, the word feminism was all of a sudden kind of emblazoned across all fields of popular culture um, in a way that I hadn't seen before. And I've been studying feminism and, um, you know, kind of women's women and girls uh, culture for for my entire career. And so I started thinking about what it is that made feminism become popular in this moment. Um, and so I see, uh, you know, the, the way I define popular feminism in the book is basically um, uh, on three different levels. And there's also obviously all sorts of ways to define the popular, but I, I see it as something that is no longer um, sort of confined to a niched enclave like feminist theorists in the academy like me, um, but instead is out in stores, um, in, in, on television, in film, in, in music, um, you know, in all fields of popular, uh, culture. So one of the things is just accessibility and availability. I see, you know, uh, feminism becoming much more popular in that way. I also see it, uh, um, in terms of a sort of standard definition of popularity, that there's certain like-minded individuals who end up becoming more visible within this popular feminism, um, and that that is a problem in the sense that it eclipses others. So it's that kind of popular too. And I also, and like I said before, I see popular, the popular as a terrain of struggle. And so um, are, I have been looking at the ways in which different feminisms um, kind of compete for dominance. Like your example, there's a, you know, a spandex tube top that says feminist and then a makeup bag that says intersectional feminism, feminist. And what do those things have in common and who gets to be more visible? So, so that's how I started, you know, why I started looking at feminism. The book started out as a book on popular feminism, but it soon became clear to me anyway, that there was really no way we could talk about popular feminism without talking about its response. And, and so I started thinking, started looking at all the different responses and, and everything that I looked at had some hostile or violent response without exception. And so was thinking about misogyny and the way in which misogyny has also kind of increased its vis visibility as, as we know, as you said in the intro, um, and, and I'm arguing that you can't really discuss either one of these things without discussing them as a relationship, as a, as a kind of deeply entwined relationship. And misogyny becomes popular in the same way that feminism does. I mean, it's also, you know, men's rights organizations, for example, have been around since the 1970s, but it wasn't until social media that they really exploded and became, you know, this whole thing called the manosphere and everything else. And so, so, you know, it's, it's about those same sorts of popularities or the definitions of the popular that I see misogyny emerging as well. So that's, that's the premise of the book, that this is a relationship that we need to account for. Yeah, could you say a bit more about what is it about our perhaps a current historical moment that has led to the rise of popular feminism and popular misogyny? Like, what are the factors at play here? I mean, I think there's there are a lot of factors, and um, and and I, I try in the book to think about you know many different things. There's not one cause for either one of these things. Um, I I see you know. A, in the 1990s um, and the early 2000s, a lot of feminist academics were talking about post-feminism. And post-feminism is this idea that feminism is was fine 
and it's, it's acknowledged, but we don't need it anymore. I mean, obviously, why would we need it? We're all empowered. We're all individuals. We can do what we want. We can have the jobs we want, you know, and all that, um, that kind of post-feminist stuff. And you saw that in popular culture too. And then it became clear that, you know, in the, in the sort of, again, late early two thousands, that actually all those promises of post-feminism, that feminism was no longer needed, that everyone was equal, those promises were actually not fulfilled. So you start seeing, hearing about girls, especially in crisis, they're not going into STEM fields. There's not enough CEOs. There's not enough female directors. Um, you start to hear uh, bubblings. Of course it took um, it was not until more recently that you heard all about the w- kind of widespread sexual harassment in every industry. But it seems it's, you know, we we clearly are looking and, and I'm talking really about the United States and Europe here. Um, we're s- clearly looking at a, a moment where there's a crisis. And so I think that popular feminism emerges in part because you have a different generation of women um, who are not so afraid to embrace it. Um, And it's seen as gender inequality is seen as a widespread problem and it's acknowledged as a problem instead of something that we've already overcome. So I think that that historical, you know, that that's the kind of historical context for popular feminism, that feminism is now embraced, um, although it still shares some of the same uh, kind of principles as post-feminism and post-feminism still is around. Um, for popular misogyny, I, again, misogyny has been around for centuries. Um, I think that um, certainly technological um, you know, developments have afforded a different mode of expression for misogyny. When you, when you can go on social media, when you can be anonymous, when it becomes the norm to, you know, to, uh, to tweet or respond or comment abusive, racist, sexist comments to, to women, more and more people start doing it. Right. So I think that that's part of it. I think we also have to look at changing culture that has, that doesn't have to do with technology. We have an unapologetic you know, misogynist as a president of the United States, right? Um, um, this authorizes other people to, you know, to kind of follow those those norms and those standards. So you can really see the norms changing, whereas before, you know, um, I, I always think it's interesting that Trump, when, when the, the Entertainment Tonight uh, tape came out, he said that this is locker, that that was locker room talk. And I think that what's happened since, you know, he made that comment, um, is in part that the locker room has expanded, that it's no longer, you know, cl- behind closed doors that people can say this. People say it in campaign speeches. You can see the widespread, you know, um, uh, uh, um, increase of, of extreme right movements across the world that are, um, you know, most often white nationalists, but also misogynists, right? They run on both of those kinds of uh, uh, streams. Yeah, so you're talking about sort of these like, historical political shifts, but also kind of the really important role of technology and digital media in, I mean, these are not new phenomena, but they're just kind of amplified and networked. I know you say in the book, you use that word networked in, in ways that amplify these these um, initiatives in different ways. Yeah, thank you for that. So yeah. there's, I think that something that, that you've mentioned in, in various different articles and in this book is that there's been a tremendous proliferation in the past decade and, and even longer of organizations and companies focused on girls' empowerment. And you have also pointed out that this empowerment relies on a similar logic to marketing and branding because, as you also just stated, 
the individual girl is in crisis at the very same time that she's recognized for her market potential. And like not only are girls and women marketable within a gender binary, but they're also recognized for their buying power. So could you tell us a little bit more about this parallel of the crisis and the market? Uh, sure. Um, um, uh, yes, I can. Um, so so I, I just mentioned ha- about how, uh, you know, kind of in the early 2000s, um, uh, girls were kind of increasingly recognized as in crisis. I will say um, that that is um, that was primarily white middle class girls who were who were recognized as in crisis. They were the ones that were sh- had shown all this potential, you know, it's scripted into the future, if you will. Um, and then they weren't going into STEM fields. They weren't becoming engineers. They weren't becoming CEOs. So this this um, this crisis is recognized by advertising and by consumer culture. I mean, consumer culture relies on what the historian T.J. Jackson Lears called a therapeutic ethos. It has to make sure that we feel bad enough about ourselves in order to buy something to make us feel good, right? So it's going to exploit any crisis. I mean, that's what advertising does, right? Is it, you know, it gives you the solution to a crisis. So um, the girls crisis is no different, right? So they, there's this, there's this crisis of girls in STEM. So you have things like big tech companies like Verizon putting out these really, you know, highly stylized sentimental ads about recognizing girls, um, in, in the technology industries instead of just creating, I don't know, like new hiring policies and hiring women, right. Or, or, or creating a gender, a different kind of gender, um, ethos at the company and in tech, uh, you know, in large. So, so I think that that's one of the reasons why advertising, um, uh, you know, starts to produce all these kind of popular feminist ads. They recognize a crisis and they want to exploit it because that is what advertising does. The, the idea of exploiting girls though, is also important because it's, again, the girls who are most visibly seen as in crisis are white middle-class girls. That also happens to be an incredibly lucrative market, right? Um, girls, um, are a very big consumer group, um, um, that, you know, that they spend a lot of money if they have it. Um, and so there's this curious sort of like, let's recognize girls are in crisis. Let's exploit that. So to show them that they need to buy these products or participate in this world in order to feel better in order to, you know, to, um, be successful. And at the same time, they want that market because they're the ones who are spending a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, relatedly, you write a lot about, um, sort of the market for confidence and empowerment as a commercial enterprise. And you, in the book, you give, you know, countless examples, whether it be like cover girl campaigns or even nonprofit endeavors, which I'm sure we could also get into that sort of leverage, um, certain ideas of visibility and empowerment. But there's an idea that you, you bring up in the book that I think we want to delve further into. And it's this idea about, um, you know, a core critique that you make in the book is that most of the popularized iterations of feminism we are seeing in the media are hinged on this idea of neoliberal feminism. Um, so I guess we'd love for you to, to define that a bit. Like, what does that mean? And how do you see this sort of iteration of feminism um, play out in contemporary culture? And why should we, I guess, why should it give us pause, perhaps? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, there are lots and lots of different definitions of neoliberalism, and I won't go into all of them oh, here, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll spare everyone all the definitions. But for me, um, two things about neoliberal capitalism were important. I kind of find a, a role in popular feminism. One is, is that it, you know, neoliberalism has like a voracious appetite for new markets. It's constant, you know, in the, you know, advanced capitalism is always looking for new markets. And it is also about targeting the individual because the individual is the, is the consumer, right? So, so consumers are, you know, they're understood as demographics, but we buy as individuals. So, so those two things kind of are the political economic, uh, sort of context for popular feminism to emerge. Neoliberal feminism is is um, is about embracing neoliberal values, but from a feminist point of view. So, for example, liberal feminism is you know the historical you know kind of moment of liberal feminism was about recognizing the gaps in liberalism. They said you know all men are created equal. What's not in they really meant all men. So it's re recognizing that gap, right? Recognizing the problems of liberalism, and then saying liberal feminism was a politics that addressed those. Neoliberal feminism. Um, and Catherine Rottenberg has written um, a great book on this, but neoliberal feminism doesn't recognize, doesn't critique neoliberalism at all. It just says that in order for you to be, uh, you know, an active player, you have to just lean in, right? In order for you to, um, you know, be some, you know, kind of realize your feminist potential, you have to be a better economic subject. So it really isn't about challenging patriarchy or challenging institutionalized sexism. It's about figuring out a place where women can be more economically successful. And then that's, that somehow is, is part of this, you know, kind of feminist movement. So that's my, you know, that's my, my, my critique of neoliberal feminism is that it's about the individual. It's not about a collective politics and it's about recognizing new markets so that, you know, some women, and it's really just some women can benefit from them. Yeah, it's, I think that for, for both of us, one of the most powerful things about your writing that really like struck us as being incredibly true is this idea that popular fe the popular feminism the way that we experience it as as millennial women um doesn't take on any of the issues of like women's oppression in a structural way but instead encourages us each individually to like brand ourselves and to act in a way which is like ultimately extremely competitive you know like it, it makes sense in the it makes sense in the space of capitalism that you essentially become like this entrepreneurial agent and i think that that the pressure of that is is really extreme but yeah. We another thing that we would like to get into is the the issue of visibility that you've also written about, like the politics of visibility versus the economics of visibility. And I think that the reason why we also want to define these is that politics and economics often when talking about, you know, f feminism and any social issue are sort of used in a way that's intertwined, that, that can become like confusing and interchangeable. So. Mm -hmm. If you could tell us, like, what is the difference between the politics of visibility and the economics of visibility and how do these concepts relate to how identities are being constructed today? Sure. Um, so I think of politics of visibility as as um, a sort of process where you use visibility or representation as a route to politics. So, example, 
uh, agitating for more representations of women of color on television, right, um, is is not just about that representation. It is about recognizing women of color in the world, right? It, it is about recognizing different identities than the ones that are on TV. It, it is about challenging status quo norms and that kind of thing. But there's a, it's a route to a politics, right? So visibility um, is something that is qualified by politics. It is, it is a kind of political, you know, again, it is the route to politics. It isn't the politics itself. Um, and I think that politics of visibility are still very important, um, and still are happening as you can see, you know, people agitating for more women, um, of color in, in, uh, in the Academy. There's a lot of stuff going on right now about, you know, higher ed and women, especially women of color or more women of color, um, behind the screen directing and Hollywood and that kind of thing. That's all very important and still happening. However, I also think that what's what we're seeing more and more, and this is really amplified by by digital media, I think, is that visibility itself has become sort of all that there is, right? So that you can so, and that this is what I call the economics of, of visibility or or the uh, economy of visibility. So that you can just you know that short. I'm, I'm sorry, Marcel. I'm going to keep going back to your spangled tube top um, um, that says feminist on it. <laughs> yes. Um, um, but that spangled tube top, you wear that. And, and with that, you're declaring yourself to be a feminist. There's no, you know, there's no, there's not necessarily a politics beyond that, right? Because it is, and this is what happens with, I think, a lot of commodity activism is that when you buy something that signifies a kind of politics and that, that is, that becomes the politics itself rather than agitating for like basic human rights, you know? So, so I think that, um, what we're seeing more and more as, as feminism becomes trendy is that it's just about this visibility after all trending, you know, on Twitter or whatever, or to be trendy is just about visibility. It's not, it doesn't necessarily, um, also indicate a kind of structural politics. Yeah. I think that as Isabel and I've been talking a lot about these issues, just in like our friendship really yeah. and also for, reading for many years for now many, yeah exactly and also reading your book i guess we've been kind of grappling with um this sense i guess that among women there's a kind of pressure and a, a sentiment and even it comes up in with my own ideas that it, it, it might be counterproductive to critique popular feminism in these terms. Um, you know, for example, while a future is female t-shirt from Forever 21 might seem to some to be trivial, a trivial commodification of feminism to others. The very act of buying the shirt or wearing the shirt is something important. It's a it's an important statement. That's an extension of politics that perhaps isn't just the end of it. Um, especially in contexts where, you know, uh, feminist ideas are not as favorable or popular. Um, so it, it kind of gets us thinking about people who do say and, and, and things I think about myself, like many would argue that popular feminism is a net positive. Like what could possibly be wrong with encouraging women to be more confident or more empowered? Right. Um, I guess all this to say, you know, if the, if the, if the, the famous quote goes, we can imagine the end of the world before we can imagine the end of capitalism. Um, is there a way that we could see the the positive potential of commodity feminism in making social change? 
Um, you've said elsewhere, too, that culture is simply too rich and complex to take at face value. Um, and it is profoundly unproductive to approach a study of culture within binary framework. So all that to say, can we work with what we got? Can is there is there generative potential in popular feminism to actually, you know, drive some actionable, meaningful change that doesn't necessarily get reduced to everything's a commodity and it's terrible? <laughs> yes, yes, we can. We can. Um, um, uh, and and thank you for actually connecting those ideas from two different um, things or different things that I've, I've written. I appreciate that. Um, because I do think it's really complex and I don't want, I don't think it's very helpful or productive to just, uh, dismiss, you know, commodity feminism as just another branding exercise. Um, there are, you know, I, I I've taught, um, gender and media to undergraduates for, you know, most of my career for 19 years. And it's been so amazing and exhilarating and bolstering to see the arc of that time where I would spend so much time, you know, in the 90s, um, in, in the early 2000s, talking through why, why do you want to say I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a feminist, but I believe in equal rights, a whole I'm not a feminist. But from that to my students, like creating feminist groups on campus and, and, and being activists themselves and, and, you know, large numbers of them, not just, you know, the, the group that sits in the front. Right. And so, um, uh, that that's been exhilarating. And I think that, yes, that popular feminism, we can think of it as a positive. I will also say though, that I'm ambivalent about it because, the ways in which it's achieving right now the most visibility is is in its appeal to individual women and not in its appeal to um, kind of structural change or to challenging patriarchy and that kind of thing. So I think that um, I, I mean I have I have all those shirts. I have like you know a, a thing a little thing in my office that says the future is female. You know, I have different, you know, that people have given me, I, I have mugs that say, you know, um, you know, super, per, super woman, you know, that kind of stuff. So I like that stuff. And I have, and I also have a 17 year old daughter and I can't tell you how happy I am that she thinks that the work her mom does is important, you know, because it, precisely because she, you know, identifies as a girl. And so all this is really important, but I still think that it is a first step. And, and that the problem is, is that there's so much out there that we all often end up just stopping with the first step. So confidence is important, right? But just telling ourselves to be confident and looking at ourselves in the mirror and, you know, saying you are, I am beautiful. I can do this. That's really important. But we, ne we then have to figure out what it is that has made us so not confident in the first place. What is the structural ground on which all this stuff, you know, is kind of hinging on. And so I just think we, instead of saying empowering uh, girls is good, I think we should say, what are we empowering girls to do? you know, or saying that being confident is good, being confident about what? And I think you're absolutely right that a lot of this stuff ends up becoming very competitive, you know? So, um, you know, because it's, it's sort of authorized by this capitalist context. So, so I'm ambivalent about it, which doesn't mean that I am not hopeful. Yeah, that no, that's sense. ambivalent. That's, that's a great word. I mean, my favorite thing to say is we're all embedded 
I mean, I could sit here and talk about the evils of social media, but then be posting about it on Instagram. So like, I'm like, I'm a big hypocrite, but I think the, the, the point that you make about like visibility and kind of this economy of visibility, really relegating empowerment, confidence and feminism to the body, I think, and also this kind of groomed body, you make this point about how popular feminism can't be too angry can't mm-hmm. even be really ugly it has to fit a certain type of um it has to be per- salable exactly yeah. it has to be salable it has to be able to circulate in this economy that as you the point that you've made so powerfully in the book really kind of forecloses certain people from feeling that they can participate or have their iterations of feminism be circulated or seen as valuable in the first place yeah I mean, yeah that's- oh. Oh. go 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 yeah go oh. ahead I was just going to say that's why I think it's um, it's interesting and 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 I can't decide if I'm if I'm if I'm hopeful about it or just more depressed about it that you brought up that there's like a makeup bag that says intersectional feminism on it or in, intersectional <laughs> feminist because because you know I think that a lot of popular feminism has been a white feminism um, because it's it's uh, again it's about what circulates in a, in a, in an economy of visibility and as you just said it's about something that is very happy and cheery and positive um, you know so that's why you know we also have this rise of celebrity feminism it's 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 good to see Emma Watson you know um, talk about he for she or 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 Reese Witherspoon talk about Time's Up I mean that there's a way in which that kind of happy, positive image of feminism is replacing a historical stereotype of them, of feminists being very angry and unkempt and all that. So that's, that's one thing. But the problem with being so positive is that it, it also is, it, it necessarily sort of um, eclipses some of the real structural violence and um, inequities that exist for women um, in, in the United States, and especially for women of color. So an intersectional feminist makeup bag is that again, I can't decide if, if I feel hopeful about that because at least someone is saying intersectional, but whether, but branding intersectionality instead of recognizing it as the way that Kimberly Crenshaw asks us to over and over again, that this is not about individuals. This is about institutions or it's about both individuals and institutions that become, makes it just become really about the individual. And so that gives, I think should give us pause. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's played out. I mean, at like for any, for any, for any women in an office, I feel like that, um, paradox plays out every day. Cause like on the one hand, you feel this entrepreneurial responsibility to lean in, and at the same time, if you lean in too much, you lean on this structure, which this like structural issue, which doesn't want you to do that, doesn't want you to be a bitch, doesn't want you to be mad and like unhinged or whatever. So it's like you can only do it so much before it b- before essentially like the rest of the system in place to hold you while you do that isn't there. And I feel like at least for me, that's that's been really difficult. But I mean, this conversation about power and anger dovetails really nicely into our last question, which is that you write in in conclusion that what we need is a different sort of transformation, one that transfigures the rage of popularity into a powerful rage, an intersectional collective rage directed at racist and sexist structure. We need a feminist rage. So what do you like? What will that be? 
How will we do that? <laughs> Sorry. Million-dollar question. <laughs> can, I, can I just say that, uh, although I love that last line of my book, I, I've been asked what it looks like a, a lot, and I was like, oh, maybe I should have tempered that a little bit. <laughs> you know? No. Why temper? It's thought, no, it's, it's thought-provoking. <laughs> um, um, I think that, um, I, you know, I think that, as we just talked about, feminism, popular feminism is a kind of cheery feminism. It isn't something that um, that is is filled with rage. And I think that women, especially women of color, have been penalized for having rage, you know, for being rageful, um, you know, historically for centuries. Right. So women are not taken seriously when they're angry. Women are seen as harpies when they're angry. Women are seen as just complainers. They're not seen to be rational, all that kind of hysterical, all the things that have been labeled about women often are labeled because they are angry. And so I, what I would like to see is, uh, is a recognition that anger, just like any other passion can lead to, um, thinking seriously about social change. And, and I'd like to see it as a feminist anger, a feminist rage. And I think that, you know, right now it feels like it's the moment sort of for women's anger. You know, um, there's, you know, uh, Rebecca Traster just wrote a book about uh, female anger. Uh, Brittany Cooper wrote eloquent rage, the, all these different, um, you know, really smart feminists are coming, you know, um, coming forward and saying, it's okay to be mad. It's okay to be angry. And so I think that this is as much about sort of, you know, changing the norms for young girls and young boys so that women's anger is recognized differently than it has been in the past as, as it is for me saying, I'm angry about this. You know, um, I, I was asked the other day, um, about, um, about someone who thought that, um, again, that, that all this discussion, you, you brought, you, you started this show by saying that there's been so much feminism in the air, basically, and all this discussion and people saying things like don't mansplain and don't do this is making some men uncomfortable. And my answer was like, you know, it, 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 changing structure and changing politics and changing, uh, you know, kind of social norms of justice is never about comfort. It's never going to be comfortable, it, it, you know, and we need to actually sort of embrace that rather than retreating back into comfortable spaces. We can do that and it's necessary to do that a lot for self-care and everything else, but uh, it's not about being comfortable, you know, and I don't think feminism should be about being comfortable. So what I would like to see is a sort of embrace of that uncomfortable move, um, because I think that's where we're going to we could actually see some things changing. Wow. And with that. Wow. Thank you so, so much. This with I feel like this book has like come at a time when Marcel and I really needed this, really needed this book in yes. a major way. So thank you so we're, much. We're huge fans and we're so, so honored that you made time to talk to us about all these things. And we're very excited to share this episode soon. Yes. For our listeners, you're listening to the Top Ring podcast and an interview with Dr. Sarah Benet Weiser. We're here at Red Bull. Here at Red Bull. Thank you to our sponsors, basically. Um, you can um, find Empowered popular misog popular feminism popular misogyny where where can people find the book when can they expect to to be able to access it um they can it's it's available at duke university press it's available on amazon too so it's out now okay so, it's out now 
and I'll be in New York in, um, in April, um, at blue stocking. So, um, oh, nice. it'll be there too. So oh, fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Looking forward to that. So to our listeners, if you have any other suggestions, tips, or want to just hit us up to chat us up, uh, you can email us Marcel at toprankmagazine.com. And Isabel at toprankmagazine.com. All right. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Sip it on the road, I hear no call out to me. Drew, sip it in my pants and